ahead and get started. Um, have the pleasure this evening of introducing Kathleen Scanlon and Christine Whitehead of Economics at LSE London. Um, they'll be talking this evening about the private rented sector, but specifically about building London's private rented sector. So not about necessarily rent controls and things like that, but the actual built form and actually building that out. Um, we'll We'll talk for about 45 minutes, 40, 45 minutes, and then we'll be able to stop and have some questions afterwards. So I can pass the floor on and comments. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much, Nancy. Why is it not? Why is it not moving oh, when I move a slideshow? Hit this little guy down here. Before 100%. Right? Different way. No worries. Thank you. Um, right. Why are we talking about this? Because uh, at the present time, as you know, there's a perceived to be and is a housing crisis in London. And one of the ways in which people are thinking that the crisis could be overcome, or at least partially overcome, is by rebuilding uh, London's private rented sector, and specifically new investment. Um, but we're also very well aware that people have got very different ways in which they look at this problem. Um, these are three recent headlines chosen by Kath. Um, Councils are urged to build homes for private rent. Uh, a better private renting sector could weed out the, the bad landlords. But we need rent controls to solve London's housing crisis. Well, simple-minded economists get a little bit worried when those three things are put together. Um, but I think the more general point is that there is an enormous debate going on there is a sudden belief that private renting can be the answer to everything, and there are issues around that context. Um, these two, this one is in Balham High Street, this one is Westminster, used to be populated by MPs, um, are basically what we built in the 20s and 30s as the private rented sector in central London. Uh, it wasn't the norm, but it was very much what people's perception of private renting was. Built as a single tenure block, people coming in, renting for longish periods of time, or possibly short periods of time. I lived in one of them for a while, but by then it was an owner-occupied unit. It had facilities, it had a laundry, it had a cafe, it had all sorts of things. And I think it's this image that people have in their minds of what it might look like. But there are reasons why that disappeared and why I think of it as rebuilding London. Post-deregulation, deregulation started in the 1950s, continued in the 60s, 70s and to 1988. Um, the companies that had owned these blocks wanted to divest themselves of them. They had had long experience of rent control and of difficulties involved in that process, and so they wanted to sell. And they did so very effectively over a 20-year period. And they did it because owner-occupation was able to grow quite rapidly, and because the government facilitated, through leasehold legislation and other means, 
a, re, a very effective leasehold arrangement by which people could buy their flats in these types of blocks. And then they could buy the long leases um, if they um, were tenants. Um, and thirdly, and importantly, the tax benefits and other incentives uh, which were available to owner-occupiers meant fundamentally that almost all private sector building was for owner-occupation. And new rented housing was therefore provided in the social rented sector in a different built form on the whole, and there was nothing for PRS. The process meant that by the mid-1980s, the private rented sector had declined to about 11% of the total stock in England, about 14% of the total stock in London. Um, that is a figure which is an ONS figure. Uh, it has no basis in reality. We know what it was roughly in 1981. We know what it was in 1991, roughly the same as in 1981. And the government, or the ONS, simply assumes it goes down until 1988 when the deregulation comes in and then goes up again. We do not know. But we do know that after 1988, when there was full deregulation, uh, there was a very slow increase in supply of private renting. It went up, but it didn't go up by much. Um, but then, the turn of the 1989-1990, there was a housing crisis, uh, and there was a crisis which uh, meant that large numbers of people were in negative equity in owner-occupation, and young people did not go into owner-occupation in anything like the extent that they had. So the decline in owner-occupation starts with the younger households from 1990 onwards and has never recovered from that. Recovered is inverted commas. I don't mean it would have been good for it to do so. I mean, but it hasn't gone up again. So owner-occupation went down. People either had to live with their family or their uh, friends, or they had to find private rented accommodation. And then buy-to-let mortgages were introduced in the late 1990s, and these were really well-priced um, loans to people, individuals, to enable them to buy property, which they had to let out. They couldn't live in it, they had to let it out. The security was for rental income. And then the private rental sector started to expand quite quickly. Throughout the early 2000s, we had an affordability crisis. People couldn't, young people couldn't afford to get into owner occupation. Private rental sector increased. And then we have the financial crisis. <laughs> financial crisis is often blamed for the growth of the private rental sector, but it really did come quite a long while before that. Uh, but basically, the credit and housing markets dried up. You couldn't sell your property if you wanted to go elsewhere. You had to let out your property and, and rent from somebody else. You couldn't buy because there wasn't a, a mortgage which you could get. And in that process, the private rental sector grew rapidly. New construction fell by over half. Um, and while at the same time immigration and natural growth put up the population and number of households very rapidly, particularly in London. So there was a crisis of supply, um, and if you look at the, just the 10-year figures, all the net growth ends up in the private rented section. It may start as owner-occupied or, or social, but the growth in, the, in absolute numbers is in the private rented sector. Um, but it's concentrated among individuals often called amateur landlords or part-time landlords. 92% of landlords say that they are part-time. Um, and so we stuck with a situation where devils of output are down, 
we need more investment. We don't have government subsidy to enable large amounts of social housing. Therefore, policymakers are looking for more housing overall, and particularly new build in the private rented sector. Just to two or three figures and numbers while we're at it. This is housing tenure in London. It only goes up to 2010, but you would. Uh, and I have to say that I do not believe that nice little green bit. Which one is it? One of them. Oh, no, it's a red bit. I don't believe owner-occupation went up in 2009-10. That is simply an outcome of halving the sample size for the, for the data. But fundamentally, buying with a mortgage has gone down from around 40% to around 30% now. Uh, owned outright, which is the older population, is going up and up and up. It's now <laughs> ultimately going to be the majority tenure. Um, the social tenants came down, not enormously in numerical terms, but, but basically private renting has gone up from 13% uh, through to nearly 20% and is now significantly... Um, Chris, uh, can I ask a quick question on that? On the owned outright, yeah. how much of that do you think takes into account cash buyers? Because if this is the no, largest historical... Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, cash buyers would be a little extra bit in it. But it is true that in 2009, cash buyers were the majority. But then the number of transactions was minute. So, um, but the, the big issue in terms of the private rented sector is basically what are our landlords. They've come out of history, they've come out of... Uh, of mistake, have come out of inheritance, they've come out of small investment by individuals. The result is that um, in the landlords owning one property, nearly 80% of landlords own only one property. Which means that there are something like four and a half to five million people who are landlords. So landlords are not a sort of thing differently. Landlords are part of the system. Now, of course, if you do own more, then uh, it means that the proportion of dwellings will be uh, down at around 40%. Two to four, um, five to nine, still some. And then by the time you get to 10, you can hardly see them in landlord terms. Um, and also, the landlords haven't been in the game for very long. Historically, we've always seen that landlords turned over quite quickly. They came in because mother died, they, bought, they sold after a couple of years, uh, other things of that sort. But 48% of them uh, have been between four and ten years, and 22% have been three years or less. So there is no long-term stability in the system. There is no great professionalism in this system. And that, I think, is fundamentally what we're trying to change. If you compare the UK to the USA, this is Kat, um, the perception. Perception in America is that there is a large proportion of corporate landlords. In fact, the majority is still individuals. But there are very large numbers of small, firms, small companies owning. While in the UK, it's definitely individuals. Um, they mostly own that small number of units, as we've already proved. 
Well, in the USA, they're likely to own multifamily developments which are all rented in the same unit, the same building. Um, the dwellings were originally built for sale to occupiers or as social housing, and they've become private renting. A particular part of a private rented sector in London and elsewhere is ex uh, <coughs> uh, right to buy uh, council's property, which turns out to transfer into the private rented sector. While the USA will be mostly purpose built, the UK is funded by these buy-to-let mortgages, while the USA is funded by commercial loans. We're seen as amateurs, they're seen as professionals. It's not the truth. We've got some professionals, they've got quite a lot of amateurs, but it is the perception and it is basically the thing we're trying to change. So the government, and I think it doesn't matter whether it's the current government or any of the parties, uh, the policy direction is to try to get new build, and we think we're going to get that new build more easily in the private rented sector, and uh, therefore they're going to encourage the construction of rental developments to provide big investments for institutions. What have we had of that sort in the immediate past? Nothing in the mainstream of private renting. We have had it in the provision of student housing, which is fundamentally uh, lots of apartments which are wholly private rented and which are built for a specific group of, of tenants and which are institutionally funded in a commercial way. Um, but we want to provide big investments for big institutions. We want to provide faster construction on large sites because if it's going to go into private renting, you can build more and let them more quickly while the owner-occupied market, you tend to build out relatively slowly. Um, and you want to introduce specific features which are suited to rentals. Now, if you're a consultant in this world, that tends to mean the gym, the cafe, and other leisure activities. Um, but that may not be. Mostly what we actually mean is rooms which are fundamentally the same size, so you don't have one big bedroom and two tiny bedrooms. You have bedrooms which are suitable for the rental sector. You want, so you encourage the construction, you want to attract more institutional investors, not just because of the money and because it's equity, or it can be equity, but because it will provide professionalism, it will provide reputation. These people do not want to be all over the front pages for evicting people or for or having rats running around their housing. Uh, and it provides financial stability because once they have invested, they tend to stay in that process. And the government is supporting this by, by national subsidies or guarantees specific to the private rented sector. Build to Rent Fund is a national version of a policy which failed in, in the London context five, seven years ago, um, by which funds are made available for people to enable this construction to take place and must be, sold, must be paid back once you have sold the property on. You sell the property on to the institutions, and the institutions can borrow the money to buy it, uh, and get guaranteed by the government. So there's a guarantee for the investor as long as they're borrowing, and there is a fund to enable building to take place. 
And these come out of uh, uh, long discussions under Montague, um, and there is a private rented sector task force whose job in life is to facilitate, to remove barriers, to make individual actions which can speed up the process. So what are the barriers which have to be overcome? <laughs> Thanks. Um, well, getting institutions to invest in the private rental sector is not a new idea. It's something that various governments have been in favor of for many years and have introduced policies to try to bring it about with, um, so far, a major lack of success. The institutions have argued that the yield on private rented property is too low compared to the alternative investments for their money, and that owner-occupation developers who build uh, property for owner-occupation will always make more profit than those who develop for private rental. And so in the competition for land, developers who are building for own occupation will always be able to pay more for the land because the price of the land is determined by the developer's profit after, after construction. So has the world changed? Is there something that's different now, given the uh, current crisis in London's housing market, that will make it possible for us to see a resurgence in development specifically dedicated to private rental? In order to answer that, I th think we need to look a little more carefully at how developers and investors make their decisions. Developers and investors say the yield is too low for pri on private rental. Well, what, what does that actually mean? Let's, let's unpick that. So, I put a couple of very easy equations on the board. These are the only equations we're going to look at today. Um, the developer. These are, Christine and I have presented this, um, some of, of this research to developers and finance people. And um, they're a little bit insulted when you put something like this up because they say this is, this is so self-evident and so trivial that they can't believe that that's, it's even worth stating. But um, I think it is worth stating so that we're, everyone agrees that, uh, that these are the factors that, that go into the decision making. So I said before that the price of land that the developer could pay was determined by what they got for the end product. So the gross development value, which is what they can pay for the houses that they build or the blocks of flats that they build, less the cost of construction, less a required profit. You know, uh, every developer has a kind of target profit margin, gives a residual, and that residual is what they can afford to pay for the land. So. The price of land is determined by the end, end price of what they're building. That's, the, that's how the developer sees the world. The investor, the person who we're hoping is going to come in and buy these uh, rental units and, and rent them out, looks at a different uh, equation. They're not the developers. They're not the people in general who go out and, and build these units. They're going to buy completed units from the developers. And what they want to know is how much will will be the return on investment, what's their yield going to be? And the investor is looking at a yield equation of income over asset price. 
So let's look a little yeah. more closely. It is certainly the case that, particularly for small landlords, um, many of them on paper make a loss from their actual rental activities, that income that they get from rent is not enough to cover their cost uh, of renting the unit, and the, their expected return comes in the, in the form of capital appreciation. They expect to make a, uh, a profit on the appreciation on the unit and, and sell in five or ten years or something. That's absolutely right. And it, with London property prices the way they are, that um, most landlords buying now with a, with a loan wouldn't be able to cover their costs. That's true. The institution is expected to be there for the long term. That's right, yeah. And therefore is, at least at its simplest, looking at the, the yield on that asset, that asset price will go up over time, therefore the rents will go up over time to get the yield out of it. Um, but it is one of the issues which you know, Kath is talking about, is that everybody has got actually a different interpretation of these things. Mm -hmm. So in the simplest form, we're going to assume that this potential investor is is looking for, uh, for a perpetual asset. They're not intending to, to sell and realize their gains. So their net income is made up of revenue less costs. The revenue depends on how many apartments or, or houses they own, how much they can get in rent on each one, and how much the rent goes up every year. So I put, helpfully put our little equation down there at the bottom. Um, so we can see what we're talking about. We're talking about determinants of income. So that was the revenue side. The cost side, oh, there are a lot of costs. Um, and every time you talk to landlords, they, they want to tell you about all the terrible costs that they bear. Um, voids is one of them. Every time an apartment falls vacant, the landlord has to absorb the cost of uh, lack of rent revenue during the period of vacancy. Uh, any expenditure they have to make to advertise the, the unit and so on. As well as refurbishing the unit if necessary, painting it, putting in a new kitchen and so on, which can be significant um, it, it, depending on how, you, how the tenants have treated the property and what the expectation is for that kind of rent level. There are the ongoing costs of management, so uh, collecting the rent, um, dealing with arrears and bad debt, repairing any uh, problems with the plumbing or the, the washing machine needs changing or something like that, which is, you know, one of the, there was a wonderful article in the Financial Times weekend section a couple of weeks ago saying, why would anyone own their own home? You can rent a fabulous place and the Landlord takes care of all these things. When they go wrong, you just call them and you don't have to do anything. So those all feed into income. What about yield? We said that institutions have uh, a yield that they're 
looking for. They obviously want to get a yield that compares favorably with what they, the other uh, possible things they could invest their money in. And if there are risks involved, the yield has to be commensurately higher. There are a lot of risks involved in investing in rental property. The colors here, you've got kind of light to dark from top to bottom, uh, correlate with the timing of the risk in the, in the development process. So we said that most institutions don't see themselves as developers. They don't want to go out and buy land and build housing on it. So planning risk and development risk are actually something that investors are not very interested in. But if they were to take them, they would require a very high risk premium on their investment. Once they have acquired the property, they have to rent it out. And if we're talking about um, investment at scale, so big blocks of flats that are all going to be released onto the market at the same time, that's something that there's a lot of experience with in some markets, like in the States, particularly in places like Germany. But in this country, it's a model that hasn't really been seen for decades. So there, there isn't a lot of experience with how long it takes to, to rent something if you're releasing everything onto the market at once. So investors are, don't really know how to price that risk. Operating and management risk, it is something that is better understood, partly because of the experience of um, social housing. There are large social landlords who have experience dealing with thousands of units, and they can very accurately price how, how, long, how, how long a refurbishment will take, how much it will cost, uh, how, how much voids they can expect, and so on. So that one is pretty well understood. Um, there are other risks that are a little more nebulous. First of all, there's exit risk. Um, we heard that a lot of landlords want to take their income in the form of capital gains at the end of the period that they hold the asset. But, and, and if you only own one or two flats or houses, then you can expect to be able to sell those within a period of weeks normally in, the, in a market like London's at the moment. But if you own a, a block of 200 flats, the market demand for that is, is very uncertain. Are there a lot of investors who are going to be interested in buying an asset like that? It could be on the market for years. So that's something that makes investors leery. Reputational risk. Um, Christine alluded to that. We um, have been doing research in this area over the past year or 18 months, and I initially thought when we started this that this was references to reputational risk were really a kind of hangover from the days of Rackman uh, in the early 1960s when landlords had a reputation, you know, down there with the devils as kind of evil, um, nefarious, mustache twiddling bad guys. But actually, when we went out to talk to investors, it is a very real issue. And people from um, big institutional investors said that at board level, it was something people were concerned about. Is this a business we want to get into? Do we want to have our name associated 
with private rental, if there are potential problems with tenants, ASBOs, vandalism, you know, it's just not something we want to be into, is a perception in some places still in the city. And finally, there's policy or regulatory risk. Um, the headlines that we put up at the beginning of the presentation uh, reflect a little bit of the debate that's current at the moment about whether rent control should be reimposed. I mean, I think with the, in the current political, uh, under the current political regime, it's very unlikely, but things could change in the next five or ten years. And if you have institutions who are looking to come in and hold something for 20, then this is a serious issue that they have to look at. But it's not just the big issues of rent control and security of tenure. There are a lot of other regulatory questions that affect landlords. Um, requirements for gas safety checks and electrical checks and so on. These things all add costs. So we've gone through the kind of um, thought process that an institution might go through if they're looking, about, uh, looking at the question of whether to invest. Let's look now at uh, what, what barriers exist to provision of the kind of new housing that these institutions might invest in. We've thought about what the institutions might, might consider, but as a matter of fact, there, there actually isn't much on the market now that an institution could go out and buy because these kinds of products have not been built. Um, the mayor and uh, the central government is trying to encourage them to be built. What do developers face when they are considering building at scale? Well, first is the, uh, the issue of the value of land, and we've talked about this. Value of land is driven by owner occupation. So if there's a parcel of land for sale uh, where a sizable block can go up somewhere in a high value, well, somewhere anywhere in London, actually, not just a high value of a high-value area of London, almost inevitably, the developer can make more money by selling the units than they can by uh, developing them as a single private rental-only development. Second is the question of the supply of land. Private renting at scale doesn't work everywhere. It's a, it works only in specific locations, particularly where transport is good, where there's already relatively high-density development, where there are good local services. There isn't that much of that kind of land available in London, and what there is, there's a lot of competition for it. Third, local authority policies. Um, the mayor has just published his draft housing strategy, which calls for 5,000 private rented own specific homes to be built over the next 10 years. Um, but the mayor cannot force the London boroughs to do what he says in his strategy. And many of the, uh, of the boroughs are, um, have planning committees that are not as receptive as the mayor would like to this kind of development. And finally, lack of development finance. In the wake of the financial crisis, um, Many developers, even very large ones, who previously had no problems getting commercial finance to build a development and then they would repay it on sale, have found that it's much, much more difficult to get money from the banks. 
the interest rates charged are much higher, and the conditions that the banks put on the loans are very onerous. So very large construction companies, those that are part of bigger corporate groups, are turning more and more to self-financing, and small to medium-sized firms just can't get the money to build. Um, There are barriers related to yield. First is the general illiquidity of residential property, um, and particularly, as I said, in these large blocks, the market is very thin. Uh, And there's a lack of good market information about the private rented sector. The kind of information available for owner-occupied housing, I mean, we've all looked at HomeTrack and RightMove, and uh, the DCLG publishes lots of marvelous statistics. Um, the, the IPD, Institutional Property Data Bank, publishes data on the holdings of, of institutional investors in the residential property market, but most of the IPD data refers to commercial property. The residential property data is recent. The sample size is small. It is almost exclusively related to London. So for cities outside London, there's, there's very little information. And it's, you know, financial institutions thrive on huge amounts of data. So when there isn't any data, they get a bit nervous. The other thing that makes them nervous is the question of management. Um, the, the reputational re- risk issues um, where the institutions prefer to not be associated in the public mind with um, problems in the private rental sector can be obviated by good management. But the institutions themselves have no experience in this field, and they don't really want to develop in-house experience in in working with private renting. They prefer to buy in expertise from outside managers. There is a fair amount of that in the housing association sector. Uh, They've been running large property portfolios for decades, but a lot of people in the city think that it's not directly transferable to the private rented sector because standards aren't the same and the clientele isn't the same. And finally, the scale of potential investment um, if you're, when we say institutions, it's usually shorthand for things like pension funds, insurance companies. Um, they are looking for investments of an average size of 50 million pounds and up. Probably the minimum they'd be considering is 20 million pounds. And this is something that the market is not producing in, in great numbers. Investors um, are part of part of part of the issue that we fa- found when we started to go out and talk to investors is that compared to it's often said that in Germany in the United States institutions are much more involved in the market. So, what's the difference? Well. One of the big differences is that institutions in the States and in Germany have decades of experience in this market. They're familiar with it. They have rules of thumb. They have um, implicit knowledge about the way the market works in a way that investors here just don't. They don't know uh, whether demand is going to be sustained over the long term, whether the decline in owner-occupation rates and the um, 
rise in demand for private renting is something permanent or, or just a blip, and the UK will go back to the previous pattern of rising owner occupation. Um, they're not willing to take planning and development risk. Now, this isn't necessarily a problem. It might be just the, the way the world works, but some of the developers we saw, we talked to, did see this as a problem and said that if institutions were willing to get in there earlier, they could customize things to their own specifications and potentially make much bigger profits. Um, investors' mandates. This is an interesting one. Uh, a lot of pension funds have a, a sort of list of approved things that they are allowed to invest in that their board revises regularly with the assistance of specialist outside consultants who advise them on these things. Commercial property is on the list for almost all of them. Residential property is on the list of almost none of them. There are individuals in the city who are taking a, spe a special interest in this market and are actively trying to get the mandates changed in their own institutions, but it's not something that is widespread across the city, and it will take some people to, you know, making the first move on this before others follow. Um, and I've spoken about regulatory and policy risks. Well, so that was a, a huge list of barriers, and um, maybe it explains a bit about why we haven't seen this kind of investment much on the ground. But the mayor and central government is hopeful that things are starting to change. They've appointed a task force. The Montague Review has identified a lot of these problems, and one by one, they're trying to address them. There have been very few dedicated new private rented sector developments to date. The few that there are have almost all been in London, although there is now some interest elsewhere, particularly in um, some parts of Scotland. But government programs are starting to bear fruit. Um, there are institutions like M&G um, who have been leaders in getting into this market, and they think that they'll have a first mover advantage and uh, be able to put their brand name on, on new products and, and get the cream of the market. The, the draft housing strategy calls for 5,000 homes, oh, sorry, I said in 10 years, 5,000 per annum out of a target of 42,000 homes of all sorts per annum, specifically for the private rented sector. Um, it also talks about the possible introduction of covenanted PRS. Now, this is something that um, is a, a system similar to how social housing is built in Germany, where the apartments are built, the developer agrees uh, in writing in a contract to keep them as private rented for a period of time, say 10 years in exchange for a tax break or a loan guarantee or some kind of incentive from the government. Um, the benefit on mixed sites is that private rented uh, housing can be built at scale and brought onto the market all at once, whereas developers who are building for owner occupation don't want to flood the market because if they bring hundreds of homes onto the market at once, then the the price of each individual house falls. 
their overall rule of thumb is that on a big site, 100 homes a year is what can be brought, brought out without flooding the market. So everyone in, in policy and financial circles in London is very interested in this. Everyone is watching with great um, excitement to see what happens on the first few sites that have been brought forward. And those are uh, two that I'll show you here. This is, the, this is East Village, right next to Stratford DLR Station. This was the former Olympic Athletes Village. It's got 3,000 units. Half of them were sold to, to a consortium of social housing organizations, and half were sold to Qatari DR Delancey, which is um, the Qatari Sovereign Wealth Fund and a UK company that specializes in private renting. They're being rented out now. The um, model home and the marketing suite is right next to the DLR station, and they're specifically targeting families. There's a, a brand-new academy school on site, and they're hoping that, that they will get middle-income families, which would be a real departure for London private renting because it's mostly, at the moment, couples and, and sharers. Very few families live in private renting. And this is also in Stratford. This is Stratford Halo, which it, um, the developer's Genesis Housing Association. The architectural critics have not been as kind to this one as to the other. So the conclusions are that um, many of the, the barriers that I went through reflect very specific and detailed features of the British planning system and the property market. And so kind of um, broad pronouncements about the desirability of getting more investment into the sector and so on are not going to go very far in, until those specific problems are, are dealt with. Even so, uh, I think the, the policy wave now shows that this is the best opportunity in decades for a genuine shift in the private rented sector in London. But it will only be at the margin. Even if the mayor's ambitious target of 5,000 new homes per annum is met, that, you know, compared to the overall stock of private renting in London, that is a tiny, tiny amount. Maybe, the, maybe these will be beacons of, of good practice, but they're not going to change the broad uh, spectrum of the market. And the champions in the city, the first movers on the ground in places like Stratford, will be key. Everybody's watching them. Many of them are from overseas. Um, one, because they have experience in, in other places like New York and Berlin in doing this kind of investment, and they're comfortable uh, where UK investors aren't, and also in the case of uh, people like Qatari, Qatari DR, the, the Qatari Sovereign Wealth Fund, because their yield requirements and their time horizons are different from UK investors, and they maybe see an opportunity in their portfolio where UK investors wouldn't. Thanks. So we can open up to questions from the floor. Thank you. Thanks, Christina. Um, I've got um, several points of clarification, actually, more than anything that's going to really challenge you. Uh, just some things I didn't quite understand that came right from the end of your part of the presentation, Kat. 
Um, the first of them was, why would the release of um, a large volume of private rental onto the market in the same development not be subject to the same downward pressures on rents as the release of um, uh, units for sale? Um, and then I just had some questions, because I, I don't know very much about these developments in East London that you were describing. I mean, clearly, in the case of the Athletes Village, it's, this is possible because it's uh, a quasi-public asset. It's been you know, publicly developed. Um, but why has it been secured for private rental? Is there something in, in the terms of the, the deal between the, um, the, 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 the vendor and Qatari DR and Delancey, or simply that this is the investor that was in interested in their make decisions. <laughs> um, and also in the case of the Stratford Halo, you said it's a Genesis Housing Association, so it, but it's not a housing, it's not social rent, it's private. Could you just say a bit more about how they, how they come to be? Yeah. Um, so the first one was? Oh, why would releasing a lot of oh, rent yes. Um, that's what they know as developers, that's their... I think the argument is that renters are, are actually more flexible about where they, where they go. And to go back to your point, the owner-occupiers are looking for potential capital gains. An owner-occupier doesn't therefore want to see uh, a lot of other properties around uh, which might be going to be resold, etc. So there's always an issue with new builds that... Uh, the potential owner occupier doesn't see the equivalent capital gain to a square. Um, but um, the answer on the private rental is, is well, you could, at the limit, and this is not what QDD is doing, you can, you know, there are an awful lot of PhD students coming in every year and they all need to go somewhere and you can, they all come in October, you can, you can get a lot of They've done together. Mm. It's still a bit counterintuitive because you think there's more supply, yeah. then it yeah. should go down. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, you asked if QDD, uh, if there was something specific in the deal that said <coughs> that they had to rent it privately. No, my understanding is that there isn't, but that they saw that as a business opportunity and they want to be seen as the leaders in this kind of, they want, they want to create a new market in, in London. Um, and so they are making a big play of that, that, that this is something completely new on the London market and, and they want to be the leaders. And then in the case of Genesis, it's a housing association that's not providing for social rent but for market. No, it's doing both. Right. And doing both in the same place, uh, but a proportion of it is market rent because the housing association wants to realize that Right. The capacity, the rental capacity. So that would but, be another potential yeah. model. Um, and many housing associations are now doing market mm. renting property on their on their developments. Mm. Uh, so their, their development will be made up of, of private, of social rent, affordable rent, uh, intermediate, and market rent. And of course, that is the exact opposite of the, the starting point of all of the discussion about institutional investors, which were, well, you wanted a block, which everything in it is going to be the same and will be private renting. Mm. But in the housing association case, you're actually looking at a mixed development. Mm. Um, with but by a non-profit 
by a non-profit to make, well, by, so, by a profit-making subsidiary of a non-profit organisation. Right. But the income is not profit, the income is to go back into their other activities. Yeah. Absolutely. And James in the back. Um, just going to the point of the housing association, many of those housing associations inherited those properties very, very cheaply, and are now depopulating mm -hmm. social tenants and putting in market tenants. Um, this is shrinking the amount of social housing available. Um, if, if there is subsidy involved at any time, then they cannot transfer it to the market sector. They can do all sorts of complications by which it's new built or they've purchased it without a subsidy, then it can be market rented. But they can't just take the subsidised unit and, and uh, let it out at the market price. It's certainly happening on a very big scale. As it's, yeah. So whether they're doing it legally, it's back to this uh, question of regulation. Now there is a big market in London for elderly uh, regulated tenants, and not all of the people buying them are the dead ones. Um, some of them are perfectly respectable, but they buy as avoiding free opportunities. Regulated tenants pay the rent because it's not too terrible. And they don't expect much because they're used to having fairly bad landlords for a very long time. The fact is that in, in Europe, the regulatory regime is far more onerous. I think particularly Holland and Germany, Sweden, I guess. Um, and yet, institutional investors are very big. Well, they're not actually very big in those markets, and that's one of the issues. Uh, they are big as a proportion of the private rented sector in the Netherlands, but the, but the private rented sector is tiny, and they all want to get out, but they can't get out because of regulating. That is oversimplified, but the tendency is downwards because there is no mechanism outside the very high rental by which landlords can come in free market. So there is an institutional market in, in the Netherlands, but it is not a sustainable functional one. In Germany, the individual landlord is the majority. There are institutions, of course there are institutions, and they've been in it for a very long time. But much more than here. Much more than yeah, here. That's the point. Yeah, much more than here. And they have got um, a regulatory framework which is, which is structured round a market rent at the point of delivery, which may be 20% above the guy next door, because it allows for the fact that the rents may not go up as rapidly as the market. Uh, and yes, they do have a regulatory framework, but actually on evictions, they're actually slightly more generous than we are. It doesn't happen very often. But part of that is because, I'm, I'm being a little bit negative here, we, a large number of people are actually in a segment of the market which is not defined as the private rented sector. Maybe defined as lodging houses or in other ways, but there is a whole deregulated aspect of the market in which uh, poorer uh, and migrant households tend to live. So the, each of the Sweden I know very little about apart from the fact that everything they're complaining about is going into an occupation at the moment. Um, but the answer is we have got a dysfunctional system. But we 
we have a dysfunctional system, we will find it extremely difficult to take lessons from an entirely different system. And whether that helps or not, I don't know. But certainly, the, the question of regulation is normally seen in this country when you use the term regulation, it's usually meant throwing control of security of tenure, but actually matters just as much as all the other framework regulations which determine standards and, uh, and feelings of home and all those types of things which clearly do are lacking in our system. Uh, can I just make one, one other quick point? Uh, another thing that, that makes that's interesting to that's important to take into account when you look at other countries is that in many other countries, um, Denmark is one example. You are not permitted to break up the ownership of a block. A block of flats must be sold as a unit, and so there isn't any competition with the owner-occupied market because you can't sell them into owner-occupation. They're two separate markets, and that's in in many cases policies designed for those markets just don't make any sense here. I think we had Duncan, then Alex, yes, and then. Okay. That may be question. I just wanted to pick up on the point raised by the colleague from Camden because I mean, housing associations are disposing of street property all across London in order to rationalise their assets yeah. and need to be invested, but I mean that's actually something they're being encouraged to do by both the funder and the regulator. I'm also, we need to remember that I mean, as part of getting funding from the HCA for so-called affordable rent structure, 20% market rent, every association has to agree a contract about how many of their existing vacant properties they move on to affordable rent. Associations doing agreements on 30, 40, 50% plus of their vacancies. So that's releasing social housing that way. But I want to, I mean, to come back to the, the research. I mean, sort of two questions really. I mean, the first thing, to what extent do you actually differentiate the market in terms of, I mean, the private rental sector in London is variable, anything from people renting to people who are dependent upon housing benefit, where there are all sorts of risks involved with policy changes up to the top of the market where people are renting, uh, you know, 20,000 a week or above. So in terms of where you're going to get the investment, clearly the target group and the affordability is absolutely critical. And clearly, you know, we might actually get more investment at the top of the market. The question is getting investment in the middle of the market and at the bottom of the market you know, on a way that actually achieves quality standards and whether any of these investors are basically prepared to sign up to a certain extent as Qatari DR did to sort of a certain length of tenancy, a certain quality, and these things are part of a regulated system. Which brings me on to the second point. I mean, surely, critically in analysing what kind of investment and barriers to investment there are, the issue of future policy changes, whether it be you know, the end of direct payment on housing benefit, or as you touched on, the introduction of rent control, which certainly opposition parties are floating, though you know, beginning to hesitate about, but it's often being raised as a very simple solution. Surely part of your analysis should be actually looking at the impact assessment of that and where it would lead to withdrawal from the market or whether possibly you could switch investors who would operate within some kind of a rent control system. Because that's surely the fundamental policy issue that we're facing in the next few years. And just on the, on the first point, you're obviously you're quite right, but they're being asked to rationalise their portfolios and they're selling stuff out, but it is a different owner that is selling it, it's then renting it at the market rent. And you can't take a subsidised property yourself and rent it out of market. 
because you're a social landlord. Um, the, I was, I have to say, amazed, but not informed, by the minister's statement which he made to the select committee that a large proportion of the built rent subsidy stuff would include uh, not just social housing with some aspects in the site, but also properties which would be privately rented at prices which would be generally affordable by lower income tenants. <laughs> uh, he didn't go on to give me examples of this because I wasn't asking the questions. But if anybody knows of them, I would <laughs> the, the number I have to recall hearing is that the, the bulk of the market that there are thinking of is the market of about £2,000 a month rent, which is not the affordable rental market. But I mean, are you differentiating between different investors? I mean, you know, are LNG looking at that market? Are the German pension funds who are interested in looking at that market? Is anybody getting below that? Because bluntly, that helps a certain part of the market, but only to a sort of marginal trickle-down effect that would actually be most, most value to any I, I, think, I think that the starting point for all of this sort of after the failure of the equivalent type mechanism in, in London to get off the ground even with public land and, and a largish amount of implicit subsidies thrown in is simply institutional investors have been prepared to bring down the yield which they want because they see it as a less risky market than, than they did. So what was usually quoted as 10 or, or 8, and don't ask me what, is, what makes up these things, is now being quoted as being between 4 and 5. So there has been a shift in what institutions will be prepared to take. But I don't think that they are differentiating. I think they are looking at blocks, new blocks of that's which meets certain criteria. I don't think that there's any evidence that um, one particular set of institutions would be looking at a different market from another. I don't think they're that uh, sophisticated. Because you remember when the RIA report was launched, which yeah. mentioned private rented provision as yeah. a solution, when I asked the question whether any of this would be affordable to middle-income households, the response was that's not an issue. And we probably should also move well, on. We're, to we're architects. Thanks for Donald was on commission. Indeed. <laughs> We've got at the moment Alex, Jane, and then Judith. And, yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Um, well, remarkably fascinating, just how interesting it is that you alluded to RSLs as everyone's having this experience and also transacting, of course, to do this amongst themselves. So, I'm curious, you know, passing, whose aversion that is, why RSLs don't want to move into this large institutional market. But my, my question was, I mean, like, listen, you established quite clearly at the beginning that this ownership structure is quite peculiar to Britain. Uh, and uh, I wasn't quite clear why, what problem this is perceived to cause, and what, what problem we're trying to solve here. Is it, I mean, it's certainly in this phase of policy anyway, but is it, is it affordability? Is it the nature and volume of supply? Is it the quality of management? 
And so why, why is it sort of certainty that this ownership structure is a problem? How is that sort of established? I think it's the second and the third, and I would agree with the second and disagree with the third. Mm-hmm. Um, it is very clear that private renting is capable of generating exist- additional units out of the existing stock. It is not clear that rents alone are capable of generating new supply except in rather small amounts. So it's the, it's the new supply story which lies at the core. I think the management story, and Cass can disagree with me because she knows far more about this than I do, especially in the American context. I don't think the management story is core to, to this. It will be done by somebody else anyway. And that somebody else can exist in, in many different frameworks. But it's not going to exist for the average bike-let landlord with three units. And so the argument is that you will get professionalism in there. But what you will get from that is a segment of the market which might be very small, as Duncan and I probably agree about its size, very small indeed, which will be professional, which will be seen as separate, which will be giving a good... And at a level, we actually need that, because if you go into any meeting, however senior the people are, however expensive they are, they will say, our management is... Um, on the question about the housing associations and why don't they want to move into this some of the big housing associations are very interested in moving into this Um, they see opportunities in two areas first as hiving off a kind of management separate PRS management arm that uses the, the experience they have in managing their own stock and sells it to investors but also as being the institutions themselves yeah. Okay. Yes. Um, I wanted to make a comment about the various tenures and in a lot of countries in developing this board patch in the middle, they got the really insecure and very insecure. Um, and the German case is quite interesting because um, all their unfurnished lessons are 30 years effectively, because that's where the break clause is. So, but the differentiation with the poor sector is done on furniture mm. in the English process. We used to have furniture. Yes, um, 
I was getting, coming back to her question, why there is such a dichotomy between the owner occupation expectations of investors and uh, on the rental market. And uh, you, you pointed out several times that there are differences uh, on, in the UK and continent. I would absolutely confirm that. But it's really entrenched, long-term, cultural, you name it. And so pragmatically, where I stand, I said, well, why do we try to imitate the Germans or whoever it is? Why don't we try to build on our own idiosyncrasies? And for example, I can't see why uh, housing shouldn't be able to be securitized like office blocks if, if, you, if you give it over to the, to oh, the corporate oh, investor. Yeah. Henceforth, you would no longer have this one-to-one -one relationship so that you can have the, the intermediary, which is the management company, completely professional, different trade, different job. And, yeah. and, and also, and that would actually probably facilitate uh, the, the regulatory uh, aspect of it all, it seems to me. Because if you still own the block, then you, you want to dominate who comes there, etc., etc. Et and I think maybe that, that could be a way into, and, and I can see the point that, that if you have a rental investment, of course you want the more the merrier and you want it rented up quickly. So there's a very different thing than to wait for the appreciation of the asset value to sell to the occupation. So it's quite a different, and its scale is completely different as well, and it's one to one with the other ones. So, I so there's no doubt that institutions would sell it on in one way or another, so that would happen. But their, their name would still be somewhere near it, and the reputational risk that story does not go away. Well, but if you have a, if you have a, a, a management, property management portfolio, I mean, I wouldn't know what's in there. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly what most people think was wrong with mortgage back security. <laughs> 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 um, and I think we get a long way before we get to that situation. Yes, but there is a there is a real sense in which the institution should want to know only the risk and return, yeah. and it shouldn't yeah. matter what the hell it was in. But, in fact, institutions are siloed. They've got this group of people who invest in this type of thing, yes, yes, and that group of people who invest in that type of thing, and absolutely nobody invests in residential. And that itself is yeah. going to take so a long, long way. So you're lucky to have a gap there. Yes, there is a real one. And it, it, it's surprising because there are a, a huge amount of people who are experts in commercial property. But even they agree that that expertise is not transferable to residential. Residential is different. Um, just a comment about, um, a couple of about regulation, first of all. What, there's, there's many sorts of regulation. One is about standards. And one is about rates of cash return. Um, and some of us are, I think, doing quite well dealing with standards, like Newham and others. Um, when, you, when you get into regulation on controlled rates of return, which we did almost exactly 50 years ago in this country with the uh, Rent Regulation Act of 65. Um, ADAPS associated with the North bureaucracy and tribunals to argue what, the, what, a, what a reasonable rent was going to be. And also, it was at times you well pointed out when an occupation was growing and since PRS was in kind of structural decline anyway. Uh, and so, in a sense, that could be absorbed as a major change of the rent regulation will, will, be, uh, will result in in the current context, with fast growth in population, uh, very limited context of supply, it's not surprising that uh, both the main parties have been very hesitant about uh, whether they want to introduce that kind of regulation as opposed to something on standards, which 
people are prepared to, uh, to, to think about quite, quite seriously. Um, uh, second quick comment, one of the things we don't, when we're doing international comparison, I think I saw this in one of your own LSE publications a few years ago, but things do change, but tax regimes, depreciation allowances yeah. across national boundaries make an enormous difference, and so one's got to take in kind of taxation treatment about uh, the impact on, on uh, landlords collectively. And my actual question <laughs> is, um, uh, you talked about the buy to let um, mortgage being introduced, I think you said the late 90s it really got going. Um, what is the buy to let mortgage? Is it institutions collectively deciding as lenders there's a market here they ought to get into? And second, does it simply involve very, a relatively very high level of equity being provided by, by, the, by the borrower? Um, it is institutions deciding that they wish to get into this market. It has some odd attributes like everything else in this country. Uh, up till recently, and probably still, uh, it's the mortgage institutions which uh, uh, restrict the makes of tenancy. They will not lend on a tenancy longer than a year. Um, so although an AST can be ending if you like, if you're doing a buy-to-let mortgage, you will have to do it under a year. And there is this odd thing, which I didn't know about until my niece got caught in it, that you can't live with it yourself. You can't rent yourself, so to speak. Yes. Understood. <laughs> 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 because the security is for the rental for free. Yeah. But um, it is a slightly odd question. Well, I mean, just going back to that point, that, 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 that itself illustrates that if you try and then for regulated return, given that tradition, yeah. you, you know, what, what that's going to do to the mortgage, 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 oh, or mortgage market. I mean, it may well be that the landlord, and we know that in the case of Tractelo and others, um, they've been prepared to give longer leases and, and so on for zero cost. And, Interestingly, over 50% of the tenants took the shortest possible lease, even though there was no cost to them doing anything else, which is, I find, quite amazing, but, but real. Um, but it's going, to, it's going to be the financial institutions, the debt institutions, which, which pull out, not, not necessarily the landlords yeah. who pull out in this context. Could I just quickly come back to the, to the QBD case? But Cass rightly says the, the mission and model which, which won them the contract, um, and which, as far as I know, totally genuine, um, wasn't a straight competition contract, it was a, a set of <coughs> criteria, was one which 80% would be private renting, and because, in part because of the, the form of the, the village, was meant for families which is a totally atypical world. I <coughs> do about 14 things at the same time. Now, I have a simple prediction, which will probably turn out to be wrong, but not by a enormous amount, but a third of the burdens will be taken by PhDs students or their equivalent mm. in shared accommodation, because families can't outbid that, mm. that type of mix. But so it helps to be a sovereign wealth fund. It does help. Yes. <laughs> yes. 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 All of the evidence from having associations who are getting involved in the production side of it 
is that they're going to sovereign wealth fund yeah. because they only want two, three percent. Um, and so they get the possibility of doing it. Mm. Unfortunately, we're right at the end of time, but we can do, because you've had your hand yeah. up. So. Uh, probably Brown, just face. Um, I come away from today's presentation with a long shoddy list of risks and barriers to <laughs> the provision of PRS, uh, which makes it all the more surprising when I look at the Mayor's further alterations to my other plan, policy 3.8. Uh, to, to quote, the planning system provides positive and practical support to sustain the contribution of PRS to address housing needs and increased delivery. Um, well, uh, and there's nothing more to that uneasy about further alterations because there seem to be advancing models of implementation which are unspecified, unsubstantiated, untested and so far not scrutinised. Um, we've heard about housing zones and uh, the uh, high-density town centre, uh, mixed-use development model um, that John Laird referred to earlier on in the seminar series. So um, I don't know where we're going to go from here, but uh, I think we'll have a big debate in September about the others. Indeed you will. Thank you. All right, thank you. Um, that leads us just to thank you very much. Um, Thank you.